And it's, it is a good and right thing together to celebrate with one another, um, to, to lift one another up, to encourage one another. But I, I hope that we're often reminded that God doesn't just speak on Sunday mornings and that ministry doesn't just happen on Sunday morning. So even this week, you know, we've, we've had folks who have been in the hospital, and, and even this morning people are ministering to them that there have been babies born, that there has been hard news that has come, that there have been conversations and interactions as we seek to live life together, to walk with one another, um, and to be encouraged. And, and so to know that we don't have to wait um, here in a little bit to next Sunday for things to happen, but that the Lord is working, He is moving, um, that He's speaking, and He can do that just as easily on a Tuesday morning or a Friday afternoon as He does Sunday morning. And so grateful to be with you this morning, I'm encouraged by the way you are pursuing Jesus. So if you have your Bible or a smartphone or something, you'll be looking at the text with us. We're going to be in First Timothy. Um, if, so, you know, our kind of our typical MO here is that we just, we start in a book and we just work through it chapter by chapter over however many weeks or months are necessary to kind of get through it. Um, so we just spent time in Amos looking at a prophetic work and now we're in First Timothy. And so just a brief means of recap since we, last week was our first week in Timothy. Um, this is a letter that the Apostle Paul is writing to um, Timothy who is currently in the city of Ephesus. And so this is a church that we see a lot about in Acts. We looked at last week. We also have Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus um, in Ephesians. And Timothy has a really kind of unique father-son type mentor-disciple relationship with Paul. Paul loves him dearly, has found him to be faithful and useful in ministry. Um, so Paul is writing this letter to the church in Ephesus and to Timothy both. It's kind of a, a, a private letter that it also has a larger intended audience. Um, it's written in the, the early to mid-60s, sometime after Acts was written. Paul was most likely released from prison shortly um, before he was rearrested and eventually executed, church tradition tells us, by Nero. And so this would fall in between his second arrest and his first arrest. And he's writing back to the church in Ephesus because false teachers have arisen. And he warned them of that years ago as in Acts 20. He said, look, from within, as he's talking to the elders at the church in Ephesus, he says, from within, there are going to be wolves who are going to rise up and they're going to look to lead people astray. When he wrote his letter to the Ephesians, he said, I don't want you to be tossed to and fro any longer by every teacher, by every wind of doctrine, by every cunning deceit. He's saying, I want you to grow up and be rooted in the truth of who Jesus is. So this same theme is happening that Paul is writing Timothy saying, look, false teachers have come up, but we need the church to be a bedrock. We need it to be a place of hope, of, of truth, of mission. And so he is writing this letter. It's very practical, looking to order the household of God with God as head, because the church needs to be a place of hope and mission of worship of Jesus. And if there's infighting taking place, much like that, right? No, if there's infighting taking place, um, mission gets distracted, right? And it's easy for the church to be focused on things other than the gospel, other than on Jesus, other on making Him, His name known. And we begin to be inwardly focused, um, and we kind of become a holy huddle, and we fight among ourselves. And then what should have been a, a lighthouse, a beacon, right, gets snuffed out. 
And so Paul is wanting Timothy to make sure and to deal with the issues that have arisen in Ephesus so that the church can play the role it's meant to so that God is glorified and so that people come to know him. And so let's pick up in verse 8 of chapter 1. We're going to finish chapter 1 here as we read. Paul writes, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted." I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, and the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and of good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. All right, so if you look back with me in verse 5, we, we get part of the, the thrust of this entire letter that Paul writes to Timothy and says, look, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So what he's wanting the church to do is like, we have to be a church that is loving because it, it flows from the gospel. It flows from Jesus. So this is our ideal. This is the example. But in verses 4, 6, and then 7 and following, we see what's actually going on. The the ideal isn't happening. In verse 4, he says, look, false teachers have arisen. They devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. They promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Verse 6, so certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions They desire to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So what Paul is saying is like, look, we're supposed to be this bedrock of hope, of truth, of love. And what has happened is false teachers have arisen and they're leading people astray. They're in vain discussions, fruitless discussions, and they've they've kind of walked away from what the focus is meant to be. And so what what Paul is doing here is he begins to list then in, in this section of 7 through 10 some sins. And he tells them, look, we know the law is good if it's used lawfully. And so what he's saying is the false teachers are not using the law well. And as we were reading through the list of sins, did you hear the Ten Commandments in there? Right? That he is summarizing the Ten Commandments. Listen, 
He says, the first, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient. For the unholy, the ungodly, for sinners, for the profane, he's talking about those who would take the Lord's name in vain, who would have other gods before him. He's, he's summarizing these initial um, relationships and interactions that we would have with God, the first four of the Ten Commandments. And then listen, those who strike their fathers and mothers, right? They're not honoring their parents. For murderers, right? Do not kill. The sexually immoral, don't commit adultery. Men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, don't steal. These are people who are literally stealing people to sell into slavery. Um, then he says, liars, don't lie. Perjurers. And then he has this kind of catch-all phrase, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So what Paul is doing here is, one, is he's reminding them of what the purpose of the law is. And the purpose of the law is to reveal, right, that we don't trust God, that we don't follow God. It's revealing that we have a desperate need, that we are not holy, that we are actually far from God, and that there's really no way out, right? That it should create some despair and some fear, but what the false teachers are doing is they're looking at the minutia of the law, and they're just enjoying talking about it to see who can be more clever, right? Who can have the, the better story or the better illustration. And he says, so what's happening is you're having these vain discussions, and the law was never meant to transform you. It was never meant to make you love Jesus more. It was meant to reveal that you were not holy, right? That's why he says, listen, the, the law is not laid down for the just, but it's for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners. That it's meant to help society, right, know what we should do. It's meant to be an outward deterrent, but it doesn't change the heart. It only reveals that there's a need. And we know that Jesus came, and He says, I came to fulfill the law, every jot and every tittle of it. If you even go back to Ezekiel 36, um, I will be done reading before you get to Ezekiel. So, um, but I'm, I'm going to read in Ezekiel 36. Here's in the Old Testament what, what God is saying. He goes in verse 24. I will take from you the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Listen to verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So what he's saying is what you need is a new heart. And if you have a new heart, then you can walk in obedience. Then you can follow the law. Then you can see what it is that I've wanted for you, that I've expected of you, because Jesus has fulfilled it. He doesn't say, walk in my laws so that you get a new heart. He says, you need a new heart. And with this new heart, with this spirit that is transforming you, you can then walk in faithful obedience. It's the same that we saw that God rescued um, the people of God, of the nation of Israel, from Egypt first, before He gave them the law. They received mercy, and then they got the law. We cannot, in the law, find transformation. It can only reveal need and despair and that it's in the Spirit, it's in the salvation of Jesus that we find transformation. Not, and so the, the false teachers, 
One, their actions are sinful. Two, it's clever conversations that are not leading to anything fruitful at all. They're not being changed. And so what he does then is he begins to give a comparison and a contrast. So he's basically laid out, here's what the false teachers are doing, and most likely he's naming their sin in this list. He's saying, the law tells you these things are wrong. You know who these false teachers are, and they're doing these things that I've told you the law is against. And then in verse 12, Paul moves into his own story. So he says in verse 11, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I've been entrusted, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, has appointed me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent opponent. Three times in Acts, we see Paul's testimony of how he was opposed to the church. He was dragging people out. He was arresting them. He was there when Stephen was stoned to death, that Paul hated the church, that he warred against it, and that God rescued him, that God literally, in Jesus, met him and saved him, knocked him on his rear end, and said, no longer will you oppose me. You're mine now. That that is Paul's story And Paul here is not trying to cover it up. He's not trying to say, hey, think of me as an apostle. Know me only as a missionary. He's saying, you know who I was. There were were Christians who were afraid that Paul was trying to trick them early on in his salvation. Because they thought, man, he's just trying to get in so that he can crush us. Because there was such a radical transformation. And so he shares his story. Because what he's saying is, this is what happens when you meet Jesus. This is what happens when the Spirit comes in. It transforms you. What the law couldn't do, and as I list these sins, he's like, the law couldn't have transformed me. I knew the law. But Jesus has made me a new man. Listen, if we're not careful, we run past this really quick. Right? Because if you've been around church at all, you know Paul's, you know, wrote a good portion of the New Testament. You know he's a famous missionary, church planner, and, and you just begin to think, right, like that's who he is. And we move past the fact that he was a terrorist who was looking to crush the church and that God rescued him radically. Right? I know some of you whose stories, like because you've been walking with Jesus now for 10 or 20 or 25 or 40 years, right? And people would look at you and think, man, you've always been that way. And you're going, are you kidding me? You should have known me when I was 25, right? You should have known me when I was 18. You should have known me when, right? And, and, but they've only seen you now. And, and so often people go, really? God's done that in your life? That's what Paul's doing. And so if we're quick to just nod our heads in agreement and say, yeah, we know Paul's a good dude. Paul wasn't a good dude. He wasn't until God rescued him, until Jesus saved him and changed him from a blasphemer, a persecutor, insolent, one worthy of judgment to one who loves Jesus who has been transformed by him. And Paul is not giving the credit to the law. He didn't say, I studied the law a lot. Man, it changed my heart. He says, Jesus did that. The law could have never done that. So church, would we be reminded as we look at Paul this morning that God is merciful, that God saves, and that we don't have to despair. Church, we often need to be reminded we're a supernatural people, that God saves Like, that he takes people who are dead in their sins, who are walking away from him, and he makes them his. 
right? That we're not just saying, hey, come be a part of our class, our program, and slowly but surely you'll become more like Jesus as you learn the rules. Jesus awakens our spirits, our hearts, our eyes to see him clearly, and he transforms us. And then we spend the rest of our lives beginning to walk in more and more faithful obedience, more and more in the image of Jesus. Jesus tells us in Mark 2, he came for the sick, not for the well. Those who knew that there was issue, those who knew that there was sin. Often, as you hear people say, hey, I'm sharing the gospel with someone, and they're getting close, right? Their, their hearts are prepared. They're almost there. Paul wasn't close, right? He hadn't been having all these conversations with people about Jesus, and it wasn't like he was ripe for the picking. He was literally on his way to continue what he was doing, and the Lord just said no, no more, and saved him in a miraculous moment. Because that's what the gospel does, and it's what God does. He saves um, many of you know Carmen and I spent some time in the Middle East in Yemen. And right before we got there, there was um, a killing of a missionary that had happened by a Yemeni man. And he'd gone into a hospital and actually killed um, three, three doctors, nurses that were working in a hospital serving a community. And, and basically what he did is he went in and he killed them. And then he went back out and he sat down on the porch with his gun in hand and waited for the authorities to come. And when people asked him, why? Like, why did you do what you did? What, the backstory was this, that his wife had been um, pregnant, had been going to see one of the American doctors, and over the course of time um, had been saved. But in this culture, she didn't run home and tell her husband that. She just started walking with Jesus. And she was so radically transformed that he saw and just, he was like, something's different about you. Something's different. What's going on? He finally gets it out of her. And she says, yeah, like I followed Jesus because it was so evident and so clear even when she wasn't telling him. So he goes and gets his gun and goes up and to kill this woman and, and others. And when asked afterwards, why, like, why did you do this? And like, why didn't you run? And he says, I saw what the gospel did to my wife in a short amount of time, I couldn't let it happen to my country. Because the gospel changes and it transforms, right? And so what we see is that that, that's who Paul was, that he was a persecutor, he was insolent, he was looking to, to squash the church because the church was a threat because the gospel radically transforms and changes people. And church, the gospel still does that. Jesus still saves in supernatural ways that all of salvation is mercy and grace by a patient God who is kind to those who are currently walking in their sin. And I think sometimes we, we want to say, yeah, that was, that was for then. God is still doing this. And so when an eight-year-old is called to faith, it is a miracle because they're a little pagan right? And when a terrorist is called to faith, it is a miracle because we're pagans, right? We are opposed to God. And what, what Paul is telling Timothy is he's like, don't forget, right? We're not playing a game in church. We're not just talking about the nuance of the law so that we can um, encourage ourselves and tickle our ears with how clever we are. He's saying it saves people and it changes their story and the gospel transforms. Do not forget this because the gospel changed me, Timothy. It saved me. I wasn't close, 
I was an enemy of God. And so as we look at the list of, of sins, you notice that he doesn't list vices. He, he, he says these are things that are, people are doing. He's like, they are sexually immoral, right? They are those who are strike. He's not saying don't strike. He's saying these are the people who are doing these things. And as he lists these sins, there are many on there that we would go, that's right. That's right. Those are sins. And what we can easily fall into is we pick these up, these passages like this, like a brick, and we're looking to hurl it against people. And we bring hate, and we bring vitriol, and we say, see what God says? And we want to throw it at them. He hates this, right? Here's the thing. Sin dishonors God. We saw that in Amos. And these things are sin. And it doesn't please him, and it doesn't rightly image him, and it mars him, and it it opposes him, and it rebels against him, but so did we. Your sin is rebellion against a holy God, whether it's in this list or not, because he includes it in whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Church, for some of you, your sin is self-righteousness because you didn't struggle with big public sin. But you just thought you didn't really need Jesus because you've kind of figured it out. That what he's telling us is, look, the law wasn't going to transform you, but that Jesus will. That we need mercy, not hate, not vitriol. We don't hurl and accuse, right? But we point to mercy and to hope to Jesus who rescues, who changes. And so when we read through that sins, it's not to say, yeah, yeah, right, all that. It's like political fodder because we hate these groups, right, who struggle with these things. But we say they need mercy. They need hope. They need salvation because I did too. And it's why when the church is quick to throw rocks, that when someone that is at walks with Jesus falls, people are like, well, you're a hypocrite because look at the sin you're struggling with while you condemned my sin. But what Paul is saying is, look, regardless of whose sin is on this list, the gospel changes. He transforms. So what he's actually doing in this list is he's saying there's hope. Because he says, look, I was worse. I was the chief sinner, the foremost sinner. I opposed God to his face, and God saved me. So anyone whose sin is on that list, he's like, the gospel will transform them. It'll, it, it will rescue them. It will save them. They don't have to stay there any longer, including those who are currently false teachers. Right? He's reminding Timothy, these aren't just our opponents right, that we want to hurt and hurl um, insults to, we're trusting that God will save them too. Regardless of their sin, that God will rescue and save. Let's have hope in that this morning, that we will not despair, that we will not forget where we came from. Church, there is no place for a Christian other than humility, because you didn't save yourself, and you didn't earn it. And you're not the one who's keeping it. It is a gift from God to you. And you are worse than you think. And he's better than you think. We're not better than the folks whose sin are listed there, but Jesus is, right? And he saves and he is patient, right? There's, there's this tendency to think, hey, as I'm in church, I've got to stay away from the sin and the filth and the disgust of the world. And we're reminded that when Jesus came and walked among us, right, that he t- 
touched the leper. And the leper did not spoil Jesus. The leper was healed. Because God is powerful. And He is purifying. And He is rescuing. And He is saving. Right? That He has called us right, to be messengers of hope and of peace. That we are not condemned or made unpure by being around folks who are currently not walking with Jesus. Jesus did what the law couldn't. Look at how he says it in verse 14. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say, well, he saved me. He says it overflowed. It transformed me. I am no longer the same any longer. He continues then in verse 18 to give us uh, an image of what it looks like when you don't right, follow the Spirit, when you, when you hold on to the law instead. And so he says, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that you may wage the good fight, holding faith and a good conscience. And then he says, by rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And so he, he lists two guys. And he says, so we don't know for sure if these were unbelievers who were in the church, right? And so the church is a place where unbelievers can show up on Sunday morning, right? And walk with us. They can show up in our gospel communities and walk with us. And, and we hope that in the midst of that, that the Lord will save them. So it could have been that these folks were unbelievers And now they have just willfully said, like started to just loudly, boldly oppose the church. And what Paul is saying is, look, as you've done that, we're we're going to have to ask you to leave. You're, You're shipwrecking the opportunity you have to be saved, right? Or is it folks who are current, were believers? And what they've done is they've rebelled against it and turned from it. And now they're walking away from it. He's saying like, I'm going to remove you from the church. Right? But we see that when that happens, it's the point is restoration. He tells them, look, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. We see this in 1 John, that John writes, right? John was an elder at the church of Ephesus. He says, there will be some who act like they're among us, who will leave so that we'll know that they never actually were. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, right? That if we need to remove someone, we do it, right? But we do it so that they'll be restored, that they'll see the, the, the strength of their sin and the error of their ways, and they'll re- return repenting, trusting Jesus, and walking with Him. And so he's telling Timothy, look, you've got to make a decision. There are false teachers, and you're going to have to deal with them. And so I want you to fight the good fight. Church, we have got to get into more of a, a wartime mentality. <laughs> we talked about this at Gospel Community last week, that we come not to tickle our ears and not to just be um, encouraged by how clever someone is, but to be transformed, to be equipped, to go out into the world around those who are currently wrapped up and slave to sin, to be able to point them to hope and mercy and the patience of God who is looking to rescue and to save them, right? And so he's telling Timothy, right, I want you to hold faith and a good conscience. He, he puts it in this order intentionally, that faith comes first and then a good conscience. It's not keeping the law. It's not having a good conscience that then gives us faith. It's that God rescues us. And in that, as we begin to walk after Jesus in obedience, that a good conscience comes. That He wants Him to shepherd the people well. 
Church, we have to cling to the gospel because it's what is going to continue to bear fruit to make us look more like Jesus. The gospel that, that God says, I will take care of you. I will rescue you. I, I will rescue. I will save you because you can't save yourself. That you are far from me. And so Jesus lives the life we're supposed to live, dies the death that we deserve to die, and beats sin and Satan and death and lives today. That God saves. So it's, it's what we cling to, to not be shipwrecked. And it's the hope we have for others that they don't have to stay where they're at. That God will redeem and rescue them. So we're going to just end with three quick thoughts and be done. I don't know if names are coming to your mind this morning. But whoever it is you're thinking of, whoever it is you've been praying for, they're not too far gone. Right? We, church, we just got to be reminded of that, that they're not too far gone. Because no one would have looked at Paul and said, man, he's close. He's about to believe. And then in a moment, Jesus saves him. So as long as we are breathing, we are not too far gone. And they don't have to currently be interested or looking. Because the arm of the Lord is not too short to save. That He can rescue them in any moment. And so would we be a people that have a renewed hope that God saves? That rescue is available. Because if we believe that it is, then we'll pray for it. If we believe that it is, then we'll share it. And we'll ask God to do what only He can. And then we will celebrate it like the miracle that it is. Right? Because the, the tendency would be to say, well, you grew up in church, so obviously you ended up here. Instead of God took something dead and made it alive. And it just to be rejoiced and rescued because God has brought salvation. So would we be, have a renewed hope? Second, for those of you who have been rescued, would you have a return to the joy of your salvation? That you are rescued. That you didn't stumble into something. You didn't figure it out. You, didn't, but you weren't transformed by the law. That Jesus made you His. He rescued you. He called you by name. And He said, trust me, know me, follow me. It's why Paul says, so I thank him who has given me strength in verse 12. In verse 14, he says, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. In verse 17, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He is celebrating that God saves, that God rescues, not that Paul figured it out. God is patient And he is making his enemies into family. Everyone that's in his family was once a rebel opposed to him. That we would walk in humility. The third thing is this. Not just that we would have a renewed hope that God saves. Not just that we would return to the joy of our salvation. But that we would be reminded that we are to be ministers of reconciliation. That Redeemer is supposed to be a base of operation for Pampa and the Panhandle and the world, right? Where we go out from looking to tell people there's a God who saves, and He is patient, and He is gracious, and He is merciful, and He is holy. And so the law is going to convict, and as right as you begin to despair, and it feels like it's too much to bear, Jesus says, but I love you, and I've paid for it, and I will transform you. 
that we have these twin things, the law that reveals in Jesus who saves and heals. So church, that we would ask Him to save, and we would share like He can and like He does. Paul writes in, in 2 Corinthians 5, right, that we are to be ministers of reconciliation because we have been made right with God. His wrath has been satisfied because of Jesus. And so what Paul is telling Timothy is this, the church in Ephesus has to get this so that the message can go out. And if you're just going to fight amongst yourself and have endless vain discussions, then people don't get to know Jesus, and God is worthy of more worship. And they need to be rescued. So walk in faithful humility, trusting the gospel. Why are we going to waste time with petty agendas and fruitless conversation when people need to know the truth and the beauty of Jesus? It's why we don't fight, and it's why we don't push our own agendas, but why we trust God to rescue and to save, to make us His. 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone, verse 17, is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. All those sins that were listed passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ has reconciled, made right us to Himself, and given us the ministry of reconciliation. If you skip down to verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, making his, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He, Jesus, or sorry, He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This morning, if you have been rescued by God, if you know Him, then you have been given Christ's righteousness. And not so that you can lord over others, but so that you can point humbly to where you found it, to the one who's given it and the one who is worthy of the worship that we have to offer. That that is the, the cry that we want to have here, that we would point people to Jesus not with hate, but with love, with hope, with mercy, that that He is gracious and patient. So listen, we're going to pray. And I would like us just to take a couple moments. I hope someone has come to mind that you would love to see Jesus save. And and so after I pray for us, if you'll just take a couple moments and and pray for that person or that family or that individual by name. And then the band is going to come up, and as they begin to play, you can stand, and we can worship and celebrate the fact that we are a rescued people this morning. Um, At any point during the next three songs, um, the Lord's Supper is set up, that we would be reminded that it is not because of the law, and it's not because of our church attendance, and it's not because of giving, and it's not because we're Americans, and it's certainly not because we live in West Texas, that you know Jesus. It's because Jesus has done it for you. He paid for your sins. He substituted Himself. He satisfied the wrath of God. And He is alive today. And so we take the cup, reminding us of His blood that was spilt on our behalf. And we take the bread, reminding us of His body that was crushed and murdered on our behalf. And that's why we have hope. And so the table is for believers, those who are trusting Jesus for their salvation. And so at any point during the song, you may stand up and go take that alone or with with friends or family. Um, But would we pray for the lost as God has revealed this morning? Would we celebrate and worship a God who rescues? And would we remember the hope that we have 
that is because of the cross and Jesus' resurrection. Let's pray. Father, you God, you save. You redeem. You rescue. You make us whole. And you give us what we could have never earned. Intimacy with you. Closeness to you. Salvation. We, we are, God, we get it all because you make us sons and daughters of the King. You bring us into the family. Father, would we not take that lightly? Would we not think of ourselves as better? Would we think of ourselves as rescued and walk in the humility of that? And God, but because you do save, that we would hope in those who are currently far from you. That you would do what only you can and you would rescue them. Father, would we celebrate our own rescue well and would we serve and strive to be ministers of reconciliation? Until the day you return for us or you call us home. In Jesus' name, amen.